Good morning. We're going to read from the passage now. It's Luke 13, verses 18 to 21. Then Jesus asked, What is the kingdom of God like? What shall I compare it to? It is like a mustard seed, which a man took and planted in his garden. It grew and became a tree, and the birds of the air perched in its branches. Again he asked, What shall I compare the kingdom of God to? It is like yeast that a woman took and mixed into a large amount of flour until it worked all through the dough. Well, thank you very much, Joe. Thank you, Nathan. And uh, good morning, everybody. Welcome uh, to you if you're here, as Nathan said, and also a very warm welcome if you are tuning in uh, online at home. It's great to be here, uh, great to see you, and brilliant to turn back to this uh, really crucial uh, part of Luke's Gospel as we listen to the words of Jesus. One of the things that followers of Jesus need to be clear about is where the real progress is in this world. Where the real progress is in this world. The progress that matters, the progress that lasts, the progress that is worth investing your life in. And this clarity does not come easily because of what I've called on the outline the myth of human progress. The myth of human progress. What do I mean by the myth of human progress? Well, let me ask you a question. Do you believe that the state of this world in general is getting better all the time? Do you believe that we human beings and human societies are progressing? That we're improving all the time, or at least capable of improving and progressing? When you look at the big problems of the world, you know, whatever the biggest problem is that you kind of think about... uh, when you watch the news or when you look around, um, you know, the destruction of the environment, economic and social inequality, global conflicts, and those kind of massive problems. Uh, do you think that human beings have the ability to one day resolve those problems? Do you think we can make the world a better place? Do you think that through human effort and achievement, through education, democracy, science, and technology, we can fix things once and for all? And a new and better world will one day come. Do you believe that? I think that most people do believe something like that is possible. I heard two good examples of it this week. Uh, One was Prince Charles uh, telling us that we can reverse climate change if we act quickly. And the other was Boris Johnson exhorting us in a a brilliant speech, a, a Churchillian speech of eloquence and optimism, that we can... Humanity can defeat coronavirus, and we will. And this is not a criticism of either of those men. That's what human leaders do. It's what every generation believes, that through human achievement, things are gradually improving, and a better world, a a world free of disease and poverty and conflict, is just around the corner. If only we try hard enough. It's a view that fits perfectly with our proud, secular, materialistic culture whether it's Barack Obama or Bob the Builder, can we fix it? Yes, we can. But I want to suggest that such optimism in human progress 
is a myth. It's a false promise. It's a delusion. Because it ignores the fundamental biblical realities of sin and death. Uh, Think, for example, of the frustration that we are told in the book of Ecclesiastes God has hardwired into this world as a result of our rebellion. Or think back to two weeks ago and those rumble strips of judgment that God has placed in our world to help us to remember that we cannot create heaven on earth. The reality actually is that some things get better, but other things get worse. And the world remains fundamentally broken, generation after generation after generation. It's a little bit like the Booth's loyalty card. I don't know if you've got one of these. Uh, If you're new to the North, uh, particularly students, welcome. Booth's is our local northern high-end supermarket. And they launched a few years ago this loyalty card. Some of you may remember it was actually quite good. You got a free coffee every day without having to spend anything. So every day you can go and get your little free cup of coffee. You got a free newspaper every day for spending five pounds. And every few months they email you telling you that they are improving the loyalty card even more, that they've listened to feedback and they're giving you all these new benefits. But then you read the email and you think, actually, they're just taking things away. The free coffee actually became a free coffee if you took your own cup. For environmental reasons, of course. And then the coffee stopped altogether. The free newspaper became free only at weekends. Then only when you spend £10. Now only when you spend £25. And all of us can see that it actually is just getting worse and worse and worse. But they keep telling us it's getting better and better and better. And I think the same is true of our world. That human accomplishments can be incredibly impressive. Medical improvements and cures that can make enormous differences to people's lives. Scientific discoveries that previously we would have thought unimaginable. Even in the realm of sport and athletics. Who would have thought it was possible to run a marathon in less than two hours? Human achievements seem to know no no bounds. Things appear to be getting better and better and better. But alongside those things... Is climate change, extinction, war, conflict, disasters, pollution, knife crime, racial hatred, global pandemics, and just the ordinary effects of sin that we experience every day. And the very best efforts of humanity fall short of making progress, progress that lasts. And that raises a question then. Where is the progress that matters? Is there any way you can look at in this world that can give us hope of progress? Hope of things getting better, even in the face of death and sin and judgment? Or to put it more crudely, which horse is worth backing? Or which basket is worth putting my eggs in? Where is the progress that matters? Well, come with me to this short but... I think, vital piece of Jesus' teaching in Luke 13, right in the middle of the chapter. In a few short verses with two brilliant little pictures, Jesus is going to give us a lesson on the progress of the world that matters 
And we're going to see that the one thing making progress in the world, whether we see it or not, is God's work. The one thing making progress in the world, whether we see it or not, is God's work. And we're going to see that this is the progress that matters. This is the progress that is worth getting excited about. This is the progress that is worth building your life around and investing everything you've got in. Progress that lasts forever. The progress of the kingdom of God. But the problem with it, as Becky has already hinted in that uh, video, is that it's not always easy to see. Sometimes this progress looks incredibly small. And so to help us to see it, to give us eyes to see it, Jesus gives us these two well-known parables. They're similar but different. They're similar but subtly different. One is about the seed, the other is about yeast. So we'll look at them one at a time under the two headings you'll see on the sheet. Firstly, Jesus wants us to understand that the progress of the kingdom of God involves unimpressive beginnings but eventual dominance. Unimpressive beginnings but eventual dominance. Dominance. Look at verse 18. Then Jesus asked, what is the kingdom of God like? What shall I compare it to? At first sight, the question seems to come out of the blue. But it doesn't. And the people listening to Jesus would have had no surprise that he was asking that question. There are two reasons for this. Firstly, because the kingdom of God was what every Jew was expecting and hoping for. Why? Because this expectation had been raised for them by the Old Testament scriptures, which, if they're about anything at all, are all about the kingdom of God. So, for example, the people Jesus was speaking to believed that God was one day going to send a descendant of the great King David who would destroy Israel's enemies, release them from oppression, bring them back from exile, conquer Satan, and usher in a new world of peace and plenty under the perfect rule of God. This is what they believe. This is what the Old Testament scriptures taught them. This was their hope, the coming of the kingdom of God. And this expectation had not in any way been dampened by Jesus. In fact, as Jesus goes through Galilee and as he heads towards Jerusalem, as we read through Luke's gospel, he actually keeps heightening that expectation even more. So Nathan reminded us earlier, he taught his disciples to pray, didn't he? Most famous prayer, your kingdom come. But clearly the kingdom of God had not yet come. They could see and experience for themselves that this world was still under the rule of Satan with all the suffering and slavery this brings. This was not the promised land of milk and honey. And so given that tension of expectation and reality, it's no surprise to find Jesus ruminating with his hearers What is the kingdom of God like? This mighty rule of God that has been promised and expected, this end time regime change, this moment of putting everything right, what is it like? The second reason it's no surprise is because as we saw last week, the passage just before this one gave us a tantalizing glimpse of what it might look like when the rule of God comes. Remember the bent woman bound and enslaved, we're told, for 18 years, being released by Jesus as a glimpse of the new creation that he is going to bring to the whole world. Which is why verse 18 actually begins, and some of your Bibles have this, therefore Jesus asked, follow straight on. 
Because the miracle has raised the expectation even further that the kingdom of God is coming. And so the question makes total sense in that context. High expectations. Kingdom of God is what we want. Your kingdom come. And so Jesus says, what will it be like? But if the question is obvious, I want to suggest that the answer he gives would have shaken his listeners to the core. Have a look again at verse 19. What is the kingdom like? It is like a mustard seed, which a man took and planted in his garden. It grew and became a tree, and the birds of the air perched in its branches. Now, both of these parables have in common something small becomes becoming something big. A small seed becomes a big tree. A small amount of yeast transforms a large amount of flour. And so it's easy to assume that the point of them is a gradual growth of the kingdom. So Jesus is replacing their idea of this kind of sudden revolutionary moment with a slow and steady grassroots movement that will spread. It's easy to think that that is the point. But I don't think that is quite the point. And if you think about it, there's nothing unique about Christianity. Nothing unique to Christianity about that. Lots of things start small and grow big, don't they? Islam started small and grew big. Buddhism started small and grew big. Communism started small and grew big. Facebook started small and grew big. TikTok started small and grew big. Coronavirus started small and grew big. Sure, Christianity did as well. Christianity started, if you like, with 11 disciples. And then in the book of Acts, we read 120 and then 3,000 and then a third of the Roman Empire by the end of the third century. And now 1.2 billion people call themselves Christians. It started small and grew big, but then lots of things do. That gradual growth dynamic is not unique to Christianity. I think Jesus is drawing attention to something different here. Not just that it starts small and grows big. Lots of things do that. But what he's talking about is the connection between the small thing and the big thing. A connection that you would never guess for yourself. A connection you would never work out. You see, both parts of this parable would have resonated with the crowd separately. Let's take the tree first. See, this is not any tree. Certainly not the kind of tree you'd grow if you planted a mustard seed. Everybody knew that. This is a particular tree that has Old Testament uh, precedence. It's an enormous tree, isn't it, with spreading branches big enough for birds to shelter in. And by saying that, Jesus is wanting us to make a connection to a particular kind of tree that is mentioned in the Old Testament. It's mentioned several times in Daniel 4, for example. There is a tree that is the symbol of King Nebuchadnezzar, the great superpower of Babylon who takes over the world. In Ezekiel 31, the same image is used of the the other superpower that came before Babylon, Assyria. Great human kingdom that takes over the world. And in Ezekiel 37, a similar image is used, this time of the kingdom of God. And the hope of God's kingdom coming with David. God's great king coming to set up his kingdom and then the Gentiles coming in and sheltering in its branches like birds. So this tree 
is not just a big thing that Jesus thinks about. It is the biggest thing there is. It is a specific, deliberate symbol of the kingdom of God, of the all-encompassing world view, world rule of God over his world. Well, what about the mustard seed? The mustard seed was also familiar in that culture. And it was proverbial for something very, very small and unnoticeable. So in Luke 17, Jesus famously says to his disciples that all they need is is faith as small as a mustard seed. It is something that is insignificant to the human eye, but incredibly important. In fact, to underline this, before you came in, I put a single mustard seed on everybody's seat. If you're at home, don't worry, I didn't come into your house and (laughs) put on there. This is what they look like. They're little black seeds. This is... uh, These are quite nice ones from Booths. (laughs) Hopefully Emma got her 2% discount or whatever, but I bet she didn't. But did anyone notice the mustard seed? No one noticed. You noticed, but you saw me, didn't you, James? You saw me put it on. (laughs) (laughs) But well done for noticing. But nobody else noticed. No one noticed the, the little seed. You just came and sat down on your seat, but there was a little mustard seed on there. It's so insignificant. And so put these two images together and you don't just have a small thing becoming a big thing. You have something very, very insignificant, something you would never put your hope in becoming the answer to the world's problems. In other words, this is a Jack and the Beanstalk story. This is not natural. You would never have looked at this seed and guessed what it would become. The emphasis is on the smallness of the seed in contrast to the comprehensiveness of the outcome. Jesus' point is the connection between the beginning and the end. The tiny seed that is so small you can hardly see it that is planted casually. The Greek word is literally thrown into the garden. But it becomes Jack and the Beanstalk style, the fully realized kingdom of God, the answer to people's hopes and dreams. And so what is Jesus talking about here? If the tree is the kingdom of God, what is the mustard seed? Well, the mustard seed is Jesus himself. You see, look at Jesus here in Luke 13. Very easy to miss. There's not much about him that looks like the great King David. No mighty armies, no royal robes, no revolutionary plans. Yes, he's done some great miracles. He's healed some people. And some people we read in verse 17 are delighted. But at the same time, people are opposed to him. Verse 17, verse 31, some people want to kill him. That opposition will grow until a few weeks from now in Jerusalem, he'll be naked, nailed, hoisted on a Roman cross to die. And nothing communicates insignificance. And weakness and defeat and humiliation than being nailed to a Roman cross. No one would look at a mustard seed and imagine the tree it could grow into. And no one would look at this man bleeding and dying and humiliated on a cross and imagine that he would become God's king. That he is the one to put your hope in. That he is the one to conquer Satan. That he is the one to sort out the mess. That all authority 
on earth will be given to him. That every enemy will be put under his feet. That every knee will bow to him. Muhammad will bow. Buddha will bow. Confucius will bow. Facebook will bow. Every single entity and being in this world, in heaven and on earth, will bow to him. And the nations of the world will find shelter in his branches. That's the point of it. It's the surprising connection between this insignificant thing and what it will become. And why is Jesus telling them? So they don't miss out. So they don't back the wrong horse. So they don't put their eggs in the wrong basket. So they don't get on the wrong escalator. So they don't waste their life. So they don't miss out on eternity. Jesus wants them to understand that the kingdom of God involves unimpressive beginnings but eventual dominance. Well, what about the yeast? So he wants them to understand something else about the kingdom. He wants them to understand, secondly, that the progress of the kingdom of God involves invisible influence, but comprehensive transformation. Verse 20, again he asks, what shall I compare the kingdom of God to? It is like yeast that a woman took and mixed into a large amount of flour until it worked all through the dough. Now, the basic structure is similar to the first, isn't it? But it's different. So let's look at the parable to see how. The basic story is simple. And in our post-Bake Off world, we are familiar now with the way it works. We all know this. We've seen Mary Berry. We've seen the hairy bikers. We, we get it. We get some yeast. We add it to flour. We know what it's doing to the gluten and all that kind of magic happens. And then you can bake your bread. But there are three intriguing details here which tell us that this is more than just small to big. The first is that yeast in the Bible is almost always spoken of as an evil influence. So here is the first surprise that Jesus is talking about the kingdom of God, and he's talking about this thing that almost everywhere else you look in the Bible, yeast is a negative thing. After the Exodus, bread without yeast was celebrated as remembering God's great rescue. Just a little earlier in Luke's gospel, he's talked about the yeast of the Pharisees, which is hypocrisy. It's something nasty. It's something to be avoided. And I think the point of this is that it's, it's incredibly potent. It's not just small, like the mustard seed, but it's incredibly potent. And I suppose a modern example might be a virus or, or maybe radioactivity. Something that's, that's slightly fearful, something that is potent. It's why we called one of our youth camps contagious. It seemed a really good idea at the time. I'm not sure it's going to catch on for much longer. The second detail is the enormous amount of flour. So again, we know this, don't we? If you bake bread, you know, how many of you use, you know, what, what is it, three-fifths of a bushel? Well, that's 60 pounds of flour. Enough to make bread for over 100 people. You ever tried kneading 60 pounds of flour? It's usually one or two pounds, isn't it? So again, it's a monstrous, unimaginable amount of flour. And a tiny piece of yeast. It's another Jack and the Beanstalk story. The third detail is that the word mixed in the NIV is a bit of an overinterpretation. There's actually no hint of the woman mixing or kneading or working the dough in the story. And the word he uses is actually hid. It's the same word Jesus is used in 12 verse 2 when he said of a different sort of yeast, there is nothing hidden that will not be made known. 
the woman just hides the pinch of yeast in the flour and leaves it. And so put these three details together and what Jesus wants them to understand is that the progress of the kingdom comes by means of an invisible but incredibly potent influence. It works its way unnoticed, secretly, quietly, unostentatiously. It works, we might say, under the radar so that you don't really notice it until the end. But then, that change is deep and profound. Over time, it changes everything completely. So, these two parables are similar, aren't they? But subtly different. First parable is little to big. This is a little to a lot. If the first parable is about the extensive progress of the kingdom, this is speaking about the intensive progress of the kingdom. And again, just as in the first parable, he wants them to see that he's speaking about himself. About what his kingship, his rule will look like. How his rule is going to change the world. So again, think about Jesus here as he stands in Luke 13. What is he actually doing? Think about it. He's telling stories. He's teaching. Or in the imagery of the parable of the sower from chapter 8, he's broadcasting seed to every corner of the field. And while some, verse 17, are delighted, as you read on, that interest is going to fade. Some are going to go home. And all they're going to remember from that day is some bloke talking about seeds and yeast and telling stories. And there will come a time when actually most people will reject his teaching. And there will be great disappointment that he didn't kick out the Romans and raise an army. And people will say, what kind of king is this? His weapons seem so weak. And you never guess, would you, looking at him now, listening to him, that those words of his would spread to the farthest corners of the world. That those words of Jesus would actually get into people's hearts and change people from the inside out. So those people would then change societies and change nations and shape the direction of the world. And later on, As that word of Jesus gets out and gets handed on from one generation to the next and gets taught as I'm doing now, no one would believe, would they? That this is going to be the way God gathers people into his kingdom and changes them so they're ready to live with King Jesus forever. No one would guess, would they, that by allowing that word to be hidden inside you, That God could transform you quietly, unobtrusively, yet dramatically, deeply, so that at the end, you're a different person and you're ready for the kingdom when it comes. And again, the reason he's telling them this, so they don't miss out because it looks so small 
so insignificant? Well, let's conclude. And the purpose of the passage is to teach us that in this world, it is God's work that is making progress, whether we see it or not. And I want to suggest four implications, each of which will be worth exploring further as we chat afterwards or in the week ahead as we meet in groups and continue to think about these four implications. Be humbled, be encouraged, be involved, and don't miss out. First of all, be humbled. I think this is a humbling thing for us to hear. Because we're so attracted, aren't we, to the myth of human progress. And this is harmful to our pride to hear this. It's like every headmaster's speech at speech day. You can make a difference. And nothing suits our secularist, materialist, Western culture more than the idea that we can fix the world. That's why we worship science and scientists in our society. But Jesus teaches us that it's God's work that is making progress, whether we see it or not. And often what looks small and puny and irrelevant and weak, that is where God is most powerfully at work. And that brings down our pride. Be humbled. Secondly, be encouraged. I think this passage is a tremendous encouragement to us as Christians. Helps us to see the world as God sees it. See, the narrative of the world in general, and perhaps particularly in our Western liberal uh, uh, society, is that the things of God are not doing well. That Jesus Christ is, is... is not prospering in Britain at the moment. And we should not be surprised about this because God chooses deliberately to work in a way that is never going to impress the world. It's always going to look weak and foolish and unremarkable. And he could have done it a different way, couldn't he? He could have sent his son as a great leader of armies, a great politician, a great educator, a great scientist, a great philosopher. But he sent his son into the world as insignificantly as a mustard seed. And now he sends his word into the world as invisibly as yeast. And therefore don't be surprised when the world looks at the work of God and sees nothing remarkable. Don't be surprised when your colleagues at work see nothing particularly remarkable in the church. They don't see this as the place of power and influence, do they? Don't be surprised when the Western secular media portray Christianity as always in decline. Don't be surprised when your university academics think the Bible is a book of fairy tales. But be encouraged because look at the connection between the mustard seed and the tree and know that God's kingdom is coming. But actually, God's kingdom is always moving forward. There's never once in the history of the church been a time when it's in decline. It's never in reverse gear. It's never in neutral. It's always progressing. You can see this at the global level, can't you? Think of the exponential rate of growth of Christianity in somewhere like Iran. It's just off the graph in its growth, or China. But don't forget to look at it at the local level too. Look around. Look at your small group. Look at the people you've come to church with. And listen. Listen. 
to the testimonies of people. As people just do normal life, as they go through suffering and sickness and challenges, as they raise their children, just listen and watch and see the profound effect that the yeast of the word has had. Battles won against sin, perseverance, growth. And look at it in your own life too. You might not feel that you've made much progress. You might be frustrated with the slowness of the progress. But if that word is planted in you, it is at work. And you will grow. Be humbled. Be encouraged, thirdly. Be involved. God has chosen to bring about his kingdom through Christ crucified. And the message we proclaim And the very nature of Christian ministry is unimpressive. How awkward and embarrassing it can be to explain to your neighbour that the solution to the world's problems, from climate change to crime to coronavirus, lies not with science and technology or education or democracy, but with a first century Jew who was executed by the Romans. And yet it's the preaching of that message that is where God brings about progress and transforms people radically. So get involved. And don't judge the significance of this by the inimpressive results. Just one illustration. Emma and I went a few years ago to the Brussels Bible Institute Uh, It used to be called the Belgian Bible Institute. And uh, this is a few years ago now. We support this with our mission partners. We pray for them regularly. And I remember that feeling we had of being in this powerful city of Brussels. Lots and lots of powerful people. Lots and lots of big, shiny buildings. 10,000 bureaucrats in that city who earn more than our prime minister, just, just out of interest. And there they all were in their big cars and their big flashy buildings. And here is the place of kind of power and influence. And then we went down this little dusty side street to a shabby little back street building where this little tiny Bible college is being run on a shoestring. Such a juxtaposition, isn't it, of images? And yet there was no doubt in our minds that this is where the action is. As the Bible is taught and people are trained and sent out into the mission field, that's where the power is. That's where the influence is. That's where we want to be involved. And it's possible, isn't it, to be deceived by the smallness of our work. Our work as a church. There's, what, 50 people here this morning, a few more Online, but it's a city of 50,000. And we might be deceived by the smallness of our contribution, the prayers we pray, the little conversations we have, practical things we do to keep things running. But Jesus reminds us here never to underestimate the enormity of what we're involved in. This little mustard seed looks so unimpressive. And yet it's going to grow. And so invest your life heavily. 
deliberately in this work that God is doing. It's like buying Apple shares in the 1980s, isn't it? Or putting a bet on Leicester to win that thing they won. (laughs) If you could do it, if you knew it, you would invest or get involved in the kingdom work that God is doing. If you're a new believer, this is your life, this is your mission. To get involved in church and to speak the gospel, however weak your contribution may feel. If you're a student and you've just arrived in Lancaster or you're a young person, thinking about what you're going to do with your life and your career, well, build it around the kingdom of God. Make that the priority. Get involved. And what if you've been a Christian for a long time and feeling that your contribution is negligible? Or, or even that you, you're just some, beginning to feel a bit kind of put upon by all your responsibilities and it's, it's not really meaningful. Well, be encouraged because God's work will multiply and grow of incalculable size. And every word you've spoken, every prayer that you've prayed, every act of kindness, every hour that you've served will pay off a thousandfold in the kingdom of God. Be humbled. Be encouraged. Be involved. But finally, don't miss out. Because it might be that you are not yet convinced that Jesus is Someone with whom you should trust your life. Are they really telling me to put all my eggs in that one basket? Well, don't be deceived by the small and weak appearance of the work of God in the world. Don't be put off or embarrassed by the weakness of the cross of Christ. But put your trust in him and know that one day every knee will bow to him and we will see the unstoppable, everlasting kingdom of God. And that is where we, like those birds, will take refuge forever. Let's pray that we'll do that. Heavenly Father, we pray that you would forgive us for when in our human pride we fail to see things as they really are. Thank you for teaching us that your work is progressing in the world, whether we see it or not. Thank you that through Jesus' death and resurrection, your kingdom has come and is coming. And as we live in the gap between those two events, May we give ourselves wholeheartedly to his cause and be ready for his return.